Hey, it was a really good week. Uh, thank you again, all the prayers. Um, a lot of people going through different things, and I love being a part of the church that helps uh, just love each other and do kind things for one another. I believe that's being Christ-like. Um, a couple years ago, Andrew and I, when we were looking at doing an extended series, uh, the reason that we landed on the life of Christ was because if we could just, if we're going to be like anybody, if we're going to have an attitude like anybody or have the words to say like anybody, a good place to start would be Jesus. And so that was the goal for us. And we thought, man, what if we just did an extended series? I don't know how long it'll go. <laughs> I now know <laughs> how long it'll go. Uh, but just looking at the life of Christ, learning the things that he did, the things that he said, and we're coming into the final week of Jesus's life. Um, in fact, this will be the last message before we enter into the final week of his life so that we can line up with Easter on Resurrection Sunday. Um, but tonight, uh, it's interesting because we're going to kind of go through a, a couple different sections, but the Gospels are written, there's four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn uh, to the Gospels. We're going to be mostly in Luke chapter 19. But if you're reading through Mark 10, uh, Matthew 20, and Luke 18, they're all going to hit on this passage where Jesus basically for the third time, tells his disciples about what is to come. There's a prediction, <laughs> not a, a wild guess, but there is Jesus is predicting basically the passion, concerning passion. Passion is just the process of Jesus fulfilling what he came to the earth to do, which was to die and take his place as the ultimate sacrifice, that spotless lamb of God. You remember John the Baptist who looked at him as he walking by and he said, behold, the Lamb of God, that was going to be Jesus. And he was going to lay his life down for our sins. And that prediction, uh, when you piece it all together, when he tells his disciples, hey, look, here's what's going to happen in those three gospels. Uh, here's what we come up with. And it's a lot more detailed than the previous two. So, so this is the third time he sits down with his disciples and says, guys, look. Here's what's going to happen. But in this one, here's what we get from it. Uh, it must take place in Jerusalem. And guess where they're headed? To Jerusalem. That's his focus right now. Uh, that he will be betrayed. The chief uh, priests and the teachers of the law will be responsible for his death. Uh, that he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, uh, the Romans, for a death sentence. Uh, they will mock which means they are going to insult him, they are going to spit upon him, they are going to ridicule him, they are going to make him feel less of a man. And as far as they can do that, they will do that. The whole idea of even the process of coming up to crucifixion, crucifixion was to humiliate them so that people would laugh at you but not ever want to be in that spot. And so they're going to mock him, insult and spit. They're going to flog him and then they are going to crucify him. And this is the first time he actually specifically says in the manner in which he will die. And then he will rise on the third day. Those are the things that we get from this prediction from Jesus. Jesus then continues on. And then we see this little thing where James and John, who are brothers, they basically start trying to position themselves. You ever do that? 
try to position yourself for a good seat at the table. And when I was a kid, I always wanted a good seat at the table. I wanted to be in the action. I wanted to be there. That's what, what they're trying to do. They're trying to position themselves into Jesus' cabinet, his government cabinet. Jesus is going to, uh, he, he's going to maybe have a secretary of state or a VP, chief of staff, whatever it looks like. There are going to be some pretty good positions available. And, uh, and right, if Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem and he's going to give Rome what's coming to him, right? That is still in the background of the thoughts of a lot of Jewish people. Because the mindset is that somebody is going to come and deliver them. And in their minds, the idea of being delivered would be they're going to be freed from the oppression of Rome. The Roman Empire had basically said, you are going to be at our disposal. We are going to take you for uh, what we need from you. And so they're thinking, man, Jesus, if he's done all the things that he has done, which is pretty significant, and he has, and they've seen it with their own eyes. They've seen him heal people. They've seen him cast out demons, uh, bring people back from the dead. Um, so if he can do all those things, they're pretty sure Jesus can give Rome what they deserve. And Israel will be released from the oppression of Rome. And so they are asking, and actually according to the way Matthew's gospel writes it, they ask their mom to ask. <laughs> You're like, you, you ask Jesus. No, no, you ask Jesus. No, you ask Jesus. Mom! Hey, maybe mom can just ask Jesus. And so that's the way Matthew has it, is that their mom asked Jesus for one of the sons to sit at the right hand and one to sit at the left hand. They're basically trying to get in position to be great with Jesus. And here's what they don't understand, and this is what Jesus actually, his response to them is says, you guys don't really know what you're asking. In fact, word for word, that's the way Matthew says it in 1038. It says, you guys don't know what you're asking. When you are eager to be close to Jesus, when you want to participate and drink from his cup, and you want to be baptized into his baptism, and into his life, it will not mean worldly promotion, but rather it will mean persecution. You are going to suffer if you drink of my cup. You're going to suffer if you're baptized into what I'm baptized into. And I like his response to them, and guess what? You will be. You will be. Congratulations. See, Jesus can't promise them position. That's actually up to God the Father, and that's what he says. But I can guarantee you persecution. I wonder if James and John saw that going differently in their head when they were starting to ask questions of, hey, can we sit here or there? Tell you what, here's what's going to happen, and it's going to stink. Oh, man, that doesn't sound very good. But it's what Jesus tells them, here's what's going to happen, and it's actually what happens. James would actually be the first of the disciples to be martyred for spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ and living out his faith. He would be executed for his association with and preaching Jesus. And John would actually be the one disciple that was not executed. He actually lived until he died a natural death, but it does not mean that he did not suffer. In fact, 
John suffered greatly and longer for his association with Jesus. He would experience suffering and persecution on a huge level and eventually would be exiled to Patmos, which is where he had the vision and writing the book of Revelation. Our lives in Christ, we don't get promise of position. You know, Andrew mentioned this a few weeks ago, and I wanted to double down on it uh, just a bit. But far too many people want to live their lives that they want to live. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it, and I'm going to get a bit of Jesus on Sunday, and they call it good. But to truly follow after Jesus means that you are willing to sacrifice anything and everything that gets in the way of you and him. Anything that prevents you from having a true, intimate relationship and encounters with him on a daily basis. And he mentioned uh, a friend of ours, Ben, who's a pastor out in California. They actually changed the way that uh, they even do the confession of faith when somebody gives their life to Christ, because a lot of people, we, we always have done that. You know, do you believe that Jesus is Christ, Son of the living God, and do you accept him as your personal Lord and Savior? And a lot of people, yeah, absolutely. But a lot of people, it, they, it doesn't, I, I guess it doesn't uh, make the deep impact of what it really looks like to truly follow after Jesus. And so this is what Ben said, and, the, and Andrew had put it up there. I'll give you the first two, and then the third one I'll put on the screen. But it's, do you believe in who Jesus is? Do you believe in what Jesus did for you? And that's similar language. But catch the third one. Are you willing to follow him unconditionally without any conditions, excuses, or hesitations, even though it may cost you everything? That'll make you think a little bit more, wouldn't it? A little deeper, a little bigger impact. A little bit, man, this could cost me something. And this is the upside-down kingdom of God that Jesus has been talking about. The whole idea of the last being first and the first being last. And if you want to live, you need to die. If you want to become great, you must become the least. If you want to be a true leader, guess what? You're going to be a servant. So Jesus isn't the guy who just talks a big game and then doesn't back it up. He just told his disciples everything that was going to happen in Jerusalem in the coming days. And he's like, look, off in the distance, there it is. There's the city. That's where it's going to happen. And Jesus almost has this, you know, like me first. Let me show you guys what we're talking about. Now, like any major city, Jerusalem, there are cities around it uh, that you would uh, see within a 10 or 15 mile. So if you think about Denver, um, big cities, there are always little cities that surround them uh, that you know about. And so uh, for Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Bethany, uh, Qumran, those are cities that are within a 10, 15 mile radius. And Jesus has one more spot to go through on their way to Jerusalem, and this spot is kind of like the Vegas or Palm Springs uh, of the region, uh, very wealthy, extraordinarily wealthy. Uh, it's also in the midst of a trading route. In fact, it's the main uh, trading route to Arabia, and so a lot of money comes through here, and the city is called Jericho. 
It's located about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And so Jesus is going to make this almost pilgrimage through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, Jericho is known as the Oasis City, and the Bible refers to it as the City of Palm Trees. It is a beautiful place. It also has an amazing climate. And so a lot of people would uh, kind of destination there. It's where they would go. In fact, Herod the Great uh, built a winter palace in Jericho, right outside Jericho, to retreat to. But because of the wealth of the city, uh, because there was so much money with people uh, that had its wealth, lots of poor and down-and-out folks would line up outside the city gates. So outside the city, where people were traveling through on their routes and in, in and out, they would be begging. And that was a pretty common thing. And so Jesus is going to have two encounters here where lives are changed forever, and the two people could not be more different, okay? We're going to see two people, but they are very different. And we're going to read this first one in Mark chapter 10, starting in 46. This is what it says, A blind beggar named Bartimaeus was sitting beside the road, and when Bartimaeus, he's there because he's blind, he's outside, uh, when he heard that Jesus of Nazareth was nearby, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet, many of the people yelled at him. <laughs> Does he really care? I'm blind. Um, but they're like, hey, you need to be quiet. But, the, but he only shouted louder, son of David, have mercy on me. And when Jesus heard him, he stopped and he said, tell him to come here. And so they called the blind man and they said, hey, cheer up, they said. Come on, he's calling you. He's calling you out to come. And so uh, when this happens, uh, Bartimaeus threw aside his coat, jumped up, and he, the other says, it says he, like he ran to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. He says, my rabbi, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, go, for your faith has healed you. Instantly, the man could see and he followed Jesus down the road. Reading from the other Gospels, there's a few things that we take from this. In fact, we learn that actually there are two men. Uh, Mark's Gospel is the only one that talks about one uh, being named Bartimaeus. Uh, maybe it's because Bartimaeus is the one who actually shouted out to Jesus. But the two men were blind. They noticed <laughs> notice that they are not deaf. They actually heard commotion. They heard crowds, they heard energy of people, and they're like, hey, what's going on? And they came and they it's Jesus. Jesus is coming through town. And when he knows Jesus is coming through town, they're like, whoa, this may be the one shot. Now, why was, why was Jesus going through town? It's the noise from the pilgrim's parade. They're making their way to Passover, to Jerusalem, and Jesus was obviously a part of this, most likely leading it. And so the commotion usually Follows Jesus, crowds gather, and they make noise. And Bartimaeus and his friend hear that noise, ask what's up, and are told that Jesus is passing by. And obviously, rumors have swirled that Jesus has done extraordinary things. Uh, Jesus has been doing incredible things, and that kind of news spreads, right? Um, I guarantee you, you know, we talked about Fred being dead last week, and I found out Fred's not dead. 
But if Fred was dead and then he was brought back to life, okay, that would make news, right? That would... That kind of news would gather. When Lazarus was in Bethany and Jesus brought him back to life, that kind of stuff travels and it travels very fast. And so these guys are like, man, that's, that's what we need. If he has the power to bring life to a dead man, he has the power to bring sight to us that are blind. But they've heard enough to know that this might be their one shot to be healed. And so they call out to Jesus. And that's significant. Because I think we need to be diligent in calling out to Jesus. We need to be in the practice of crying out to Jesus. And we don't even have to have a need. We have plenty of need. Christians should be in the practice of always reaching out and crying out to Jesus. But guess what? We all have a need, and it's because of our sin. We are broken, sinful people. And we are all in the need of Savior. We have a great need. When Bartimaeus yells out, <laughs> notice how the response is around him. They're like, knock it off. Be quiet. Think about that. People trying to get other people to be quiet. Don't cause a scene. Don't try to approach Jesus. But when Jesus hears him and asks him to come over, notice the change in the attitude of the people. <laughs> Dude, he's calling for you. How cool is that? Dude, he, he heard your voice. He's calling for you. And they, use the, they, they say, cheer up. And this is fascinating because it's the word uh, tharseo in the Greek. That it, it's actually a word that we usually hear Jesus say. When Jesus basically gives a promise that someone is going to be healed or you're going to be okay, you're going to be safe, they're using this word towards these guys, but it's not Jesus. It's the crowd of people around them. They're like, cheer up. Jesus is calling for you. And there's this belief right then and there that Jesus is going to heal them. Jesus is going to heal them. And we have to love the response from the blind men. It says they jumped up, threw his cloak to the side, and ran towards Jesus. Similar to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, when she went to tell people about Jesus, it says that she left her water jar. He's leaving his cloak, and the cloak is a big deal to him. But he's leaving it behind, even though it's valuable. He knows that nothing is more valuable than time with Jesus. Nothing is more valuable than time with Jesus. Now, I'm not blind, uh, but I've done things blindfolded. Uh, I've skied blindfolded. Um, I've done, I uh, had somebody lead me through. It's a trust thing. I've played pin the tail on the donkey and other fun games where we put on the blindfold. But I got to say, I've never jumped up and started running blindfolded. Um, it just doesn't sound like a very good idea to me. It sounds a little crazy, but that's what these guys do. They are so excited. Matthew tells us in his gospel that Jesus had compassion on them and that he touched their eyes. And at that moment, they gained their sight. Jesus then would release him to go. You are free to go. 
But Bartimaeus chooses to join the procession. He is going to go to Jerusalem and perhaps experience for the very first time Passover celebration. But he chooses to just follow with Jesus. The second encounter in Jericho is only recorded in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 1. For all of our short people, this may be one of your favorite sections of Scripture. <clears throat> Was me for me a while. Uh, but uh, Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 1, this is what it says. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town, and there was a man named? Zacchaeus. There you go. Zacchaeus. He was a, a chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short uh, to see over the crowd, and so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road. For Jesus was going to pass that way. And we're going to hit the pause button here because there's so much in the first four verses of this. First of all, who, who the heck is Zacchaeus? Because in my childhood, the most I got was that he was a wee little man. All right? And a wee little man was? Hey, there you go. All right. But he was way more than just a wee little short man. Uh, it says that he's not just a tax collector. He is a chief tax collector meaning that he was near the top of the tax-collecting pyramid scheme, right? So he's right below Rome. So, and it's also interesting because tax collectors were known for being incredibly um, guilty of selfishness and basically stealing, and yet the, the name Zacchaeus actually means pure or innocent. Do you know that? But Zacchaeus chose to not honor his name by actually being incredibly unethical in his businesses. Tax collectors were known for taking more than what would be deemed right, but because they had the backing of Rome, so they would collect taxes and give it to Rome. And uh, this is why the Jews couldn't stand tax collectors, because tax collectors were Jewish men that would take their money and give it to the enemy. Kind of like the opposite of Robin Hood, where Robin Hood would take from the rich and give it to the poor. Uh, tax collectors would take from the common folk, the Jewish folks, and then give it to the extremely wealthy and the extremely privileged. They would give it to Rome. And so the Jewish people couldn't stand the tax collectors. They saw them as the worst kind of sinners. And so they were despised. And it says that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, and because he was, he was extremely wealthy. And I can't help to think of just a, a few weeks back, and a few sections back, an extremely wealthy man asked Jesus what he needed to do to have eternal life. And if you remember, Jesus gives him a few things. He said, yeah, I've done that. And then Jesus says, I need you to go and sell all your stuff and give that money to the poor. And because the guy had a lot of stuff, he went away sad. And Jesus gives him a lesson, and he says, you know, guys, listen, it is extremely difficult for a rich man to make it to heaven. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of God. And they start scratching their heads, and they're like, man, well, who can? You remember what Jesus says? He says, with God... Anything is possible. 
with God, anything is possible. We're going to see two different scenarios. So Jesus' encounter with the one wealthy man didn't go very well because he went away sad. But we're going to see with Zacchaeus what Jesus was talking about with God, anything is possible. Regardless of Zacchaeus's stature, he does what we have been doing our whole lives. We're always looking for opportunities to move up, not just in jobs and things like that, but physically to go up to higher locations to be able to see. Anybody ever gotten a ladder to be able to see or gotten on somebody's shoulders so you could see a little bit better? That's what Zacchaeus is doing when he's getting on the tree. I love, not right now, but normally I love throwing my girls up on my shoulders uh, so that they can see. Maybe it's a parade, maybe we're at Disney or whatever, just so they can see. If you go to concerts, you'll see boyfriends holding their girlfriends up on their shoulders so they can see better. In fact, offensive coordinators in football and defensive coordinators in football, they will get up in the, the boxes up higher because they can see down. In fact, when I got to Southern California, uh, the whole, all the coaches, the head coach, they bring these lift things out and they lift them up on the sidelines so they can look down and it helps them coach. And then they relay and yell down to the guys, yell at 14 because he missed the block or whatever it is. They try to get a higher position just so they can see better, get a better view. In fact, the worst seats at a racetrack are actually the front row seats. If you go to a NASCAR event, the worst seats are right on the front, right at the lowest level, because you can't see a whole lot. The higher you go, the more the track you can see, the more the action that you can see. In fact, in uh, 1994, I had a really neat experience. I was able to uh, go to London with some friends, and one of the things, because we all played tennis, that we wanted to do, we were there at the time that Wimbledon was going on. And we thought, man, how cool would it be to be able to go to Wimbledon? Um, and so we, uh, we get in the underground, we take the train out, and we, we go over to Wimbledon. And we notice that the queue is like two miles long. The, the line to get in is several miles long. We're like, we're never going to get into Wimbledon. That was a nice try. But we just started walking around the outside of the area, and we found out that there's a gate where all the players... Uh, where they walk across the street and go in. And I had a huge camera at the time. I was big into photography. I was like, let's just go and take pictures. And I remember Boris Becker, uh, Gabriella Sabatini, like walked right by me. And I'm taking pictures right and left. If you're over at our house, I can show you a few. But anyway, at some point in time, as we're, I'm taking pictures and we're over there, um, we found a way in. We paid five pounds and we walked right into Wimbledon. And I was like, I don't know how that happened, but that was really cool. I don't know if they thought I was a part of press. I mean, I was like a really short college-age kid, so that I didn't, wouldn't think that that's the thing. But we're inside Wimbledon, and we start walking around. This is a really neat thing. We're, like, touching the grass that they play on. But a day earlier, <clears throat> the matches got rained out, and Pete Sampras had been playing. And, of course, he was my favorite tennis player, and at the time, I think he was the best tennis player by far in the world. And because the, his match got rained out, they had moved him to the day that we were there to court number two. And back then, they've renovated it since then, so this isn't the case now. But back then, court two um, basically had stands on this side and stands on this side, and they, you had to have a ticket to get in there. But on the other side of the stands was the stands for court three. And that was... 
anybody could have access to those to be able to sit in there. And so we figured out if you got all the way to the top of that section, then you could look down into court two. And that's what we did. We kept working our way up, working our way up, working our way up. And before we knew it, we were watching Pete Sampras play at Wimbledon to just get a glimpse to see one of the greatest. This is what Zacchaeus has in mind as he climbs a sycamore tree. Just to be able to see the greatest. Sycamore trees near and around Jericho are great trees to climb, healthy, strong limbs, and so it could hold a grown man, let alone Zacchaeus. So he's in good shape. And so Zacchaeus literally goes out on a limb to see Jesus. And it says in verse 5, when Jesus came by, Jesus looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. He knew his name. And he says, Zacchaeus, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. If there was an ever a time where you were glad that you cleaned your house before you went out to see the parade, this might be the day. <laughs> okay? I was like, man, was Zacchaeus... And, but here's the thing. If Zacchaeus basically stole from people and his house was any indication of his wealth, which it probably was, maybe there's a little embarrassment by that. Here's my really gaudy house. And I thought, man, what if we, as Christ followers, kept our homes in such a way that we're okay with people coming over, that we're okay to invite ministry to happen in our homes in verse 6, we find out Zacchaeus' response. It says that he quickly climbed down and he took Jesus to his house with great excitement and joy. How cool is that? <laughs> so he's all excited and he's thrilled. But it says in verse 7, but the people were displeased. The people in the crowd were displeased. He, was, he has gone, he being Jesus, has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, and they grumbled. Now, we quickly find out Zacchaeus doesn't really care about his house. He is just so excited to have Jesus come to his home. And he's filled with excitement and joy. Who is not filled with excitement and joy? <clears throat> the crowd. Those who thought notorious sinners don't deserve what Jesus has to offer. A lot of times we do this as Christians. Think that we maybe uh, behave in such a way that supports the idea that there are people who are so bad and so awful that they don't deserve what Jesus has to offer. And I've been in that camp. But surely not that person. How many in the crowd would have loved for Jesus to just maybe give them a glance, to look at them in their eyes, to be able to maybe even wave at you, shake your hand, or maybe even possibly he would come up and give you a hug? 
Maybe that would just be the highlight of your life. But Jesus actually shifts his focus and his attention off of them, and he places it on the person that they despise, a notorious sinner. What they don't know is that Zacchaeus' eternity is about to change. And he isn't going to stay the same selfish person that he has been. And we are not sure when it happens, but Zacchaeus' encounter with Jesus penetrates his heart and he is convicted. He, like the Samaritan woman and Bartimaeus, is willing to sacrifice his most prized possession the thing that means the most to him. Verse 8 says this, Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and he said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Zacchaeus does a couple things here. Obviously, we see a heart change, drastic heart change. He has had an encounter with Jesus that is going to change him for good. But he does a couple things that are pretty telling of the person uh, that when we just start peeling some layers and it penetrates to the center, uh, it's pretty extraordinary. Uh, First thing is he fulfills the law of Moses by giving back four times the amount to the people that he cheated. Okay, So if you go back into the law of Moses, there's this idea that if you have taken, you will give back four times the amount, but he also fulfills the law of Christ, which is love. He is saying he will give half of his wealth to the poor. This is a life of generosity and love. Almost like he is experiencing true repentance and forgiveness that can only come from Jesus Christ. He begins to realize the things that needs to change in his life. And so we have to ask ourselves like he would at this moment, what is Lord in my life? What is that? Is it Christ? Or could it be that there are other Lords in our lives that come before him? Are there areas that we need to alter or change and start living in a way that reflects that Jesus is the actual Lord and Savior of our life? Verse 9 says that Jesus responded to him, says, Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. That he is truly committing his life over to God. This story, uh, my wife, Sarah, this past Christmas, had mentioned this to me. She goes, this is the first story of Ebenezer Scrooge. This is spot on with Scrooge. Everybody in town couldn't stand Scrooge because he took from those that didn't have a lot and he used it for his personal gain. He was despised by the people in the town. And then he has an encounter and realizes that he has been living his life with the wrong Lord in mind. And from that one encounter, everything changes. Ebenezer would leave his life of selfishness and move forward in a life of generosity, just like Zacchaeus. And like the Scrooge, his life would never 
be the same. Salvation has come to this house. So there's a few things that I just want to point out and draw attention to for us, some takeaways. One of them is this. <clears throat> I would encourage all of us to go out on a limb to get a better view of Jesus. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, it means maybe we're going to take some risks that won't make a lot of sense to the world, but it's showing that you trust in God. Maybe it means that you're going to start serving and stepping up and serving in the church. A lot of people that we have here, it's amazing the people that step up. And if you're not serving, you're not quite where God really wants you to be in the church, to be a part of the family, to be stepping up and serving. Maybe it's trusting him financially and start honoring God with your wealth like Zacchaeus. Um, Maybe it's getting involved in a life group. It is the great limb to get out on, uh, to get a better view of Jesus, to meet with a group of people and just dig into God's word, to be praying for one another, to break bread together, to cry and laugh together, to be the church. Maybe DNA is another great limb to get a better view of Jesus when you can sit down with one or two people and you can just tell them almost anything where you can really get into the weeds and you're challenged to step up and you're challenged to live your life just a little bit more for Christ. And we have people around us that will hold us accountable and encourage us and nurture. The other thing is having a home where Jesus and ministry can happen. Joshua 24, 15 says, And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, you guys know this one, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Acts 2, 46 and 47 says, They worshiped together at the temple each day. This is the beginning of the church, the very first church. It says they worshiped together at the temple each day. Met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. I would encourage every one of us, make your home a place where ministry can happen, where people can come in, where people can pray together. It becomes a beautiful place. And guess what? Your home is going to turn to dust eventually at some point in time anyway. Take good care of it. Clean it, whatever. But make sure our homes are a place where ministry can take place. And then ask yourself this. Who am I in this story? Who am I in this story? You're usually going to be one of four people. Maybe they're a person who didn't even show up that day. You're still at home watching soap operas, and you didn't know that there was a pilgrimage going through town. Um, Most likely, since you're here or attending online, that's not you. Um, Maybe they're people in the crowd preventing Zacchaeus from experiencing Jesus, who doesn't believe that Jesus is available to everyone. And you're preventing Zacchaeus from getting to the front. And you're forcing him to climb the tree. 
or you're the people telling Bartimaeus to be quiet. These are oftentimes, sometimes church people are self-righteous people who don't acknowledge their own sin, but they believe that they are good with God. Or maybe you're Zacchaeus where you just acknowledge that you are broken, you're a sinner, you invite Jesus into your life, and you find the grace and forgiveness that only Jesus Christ can offer. Or the person that is needed in the story. There's a person needed in the story, and you don't see it. And that's what I hope the church will be. And it's this person. It's the people who see Jesus And know that there is a person back here that needs to experience him. They need what Jesus has to offer. People that are like, man, dude, let me help you get to the front. Let me help you work your way through the crowd. Guys, Zacchaeus is back here. And right now, he is lost without Christ Help him through here. It may be a neighbor, a coworker. It may be, but all of us should know at least one person that does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and we should be inviting them to the front. Experience what he has to offer because that's what Jesus is here for. And Jesus Christ is so concerned with the salvation of others. And this is what he says in verse 10, and this is Jesus' mission statement. It says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. This is the mission of Jesus. This is the goal. This is the objective. This needs to be at the forefront of what we do as a church, to be a family, a community that loves each other, but lives out the mission of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 8.12 says, for I will forgive your wrongdoing and I will never again remember your sins. That sounds pretty amazing, doesn't it? That God will forgive us our wrongdoings and he'll forget our sins. Doesn't mean that they're not there. Just means that he's not going to hold them against us. Jesus says, I will lay my life down for you. That's what Jesus does for you on the cross. It is his sacrifice. I want to close. Um, I was reminded of a story this morning from another pastor in the area, and I was watching his message, and I was like, oh my gosh, that fits so perfect. There was a father and son uh, who had their kind of growing tensions. Uh, The father and son began to quarrel and quarrel and Arguments were breaking out, and finally the son actually said some pretty horrific things to the father, um, some things that just are incredibly um, disrespectful, and he walked out. He basically said, I'm never coming back, and on his way out the door, gives one last shot at father. And I can't imagine as a father how that would feel. And he cut off all ties to his dad. But the son did continue to communicate with mom. So he would see how things are going, and they would communicate back and forth. And she knew how hurtful the things the son said to the father. And if 
the father was incredibly hurt and upset by that. And, um, but some time went on, and the son came to a place where he acknowledged, man, I really blew it. I would love to come home for Christmas, but I don't know if I'm welcome. I don't know if my father will forgive me for the things that I said, things that I did on my way out the door. And the mom didn't even know. She wasn't sure. So the son basically asked the mom, I tell you what, when you get a read on dad, and if you think he's going to forgive me, forgive the incredibly hurtful things that I said and did, there is a tree near the train station as you go into town. He said, and this is what she, her recommendation. She says, I'll tell you what, I'll talk to your dad. I'll see where he's at. And if he's willing to forgive you, I'll put a white ribbon on the limb of that tree. So when you're on that train, if you see the white ribbon, you get off and you come home. If you don't, maybe you just stay on that train and keep going. He said, okay. So time around Christmas came, and so he got his ticket. And he's on the train, and he starts a conversation with the person next to him. You can just see the nervousness on his face and kind of the uh, just excitement, but the unknown. Would there be a ribbon on the tree or not? And As they're pulling up towards the town that he lives, he says, I, I can't even do it. I can't even look out the window. And he asked the guy that was sitting next to him, he goes, would you please do me a favor? Would you just look at the tree and see if there's a white ribbon on it. And the guy looked out the window and he kind of became silent. <clears throat> and just this glazed look came over his face. And the young man said, well, is there, is there a ribbon? Is there, is there, is there a ribbon on the, on the limb of the tree? And the man looked at him and he said, there isn't one ribbon on the limb of the tree. But in fact, every branch on that tree has a white ribbon on it. Every one. The tree was covered in white ribbons, signifying that the father had completely forgiven his son. And he said, it is time for you to come home. It's time for you to come home. It's time for you to come back into our family. There's endless forgiveness of the Father that extends to all of his children that God offers to us. The Son just had to come home. It's what God offers to you and to me is that we come with all this sin and God's like, you know what? <clears throat> Not a flag, but my son on a tree will represent me, forgiving you. Just come home. Just come home. And it's for all of us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much <clears throat> for your son, Jesus.
who is making his way towards Jerusalem and he stops in Jericho and he has encounters and encounter with him was most always life-altering. And as this blind men encounter you and they bring sight to their eyes and as Zacchaeus, a notorious sinner, has an encounter with you and it changes not only his eternity, but the way he's going to live his life, that there isn't a sin that is too great for you and for the, the amazing grace that we find through your cross. And I pray that we'll do everything that we can to have a little bit of Zacchaeus where we all acknowledge our sin and our brokenness and our need for you. And then the rest of us to be those people that are so quick to just try to get as many people as we possibly can to the front to experience you in amazing ways. And their eternity might look a little different. Help us to do that. Help us to be a church that does that. And this we ask in your name. Amen. Well, I'm excited uh, that we get to just shift right from that talking about the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us on the cross to a time where we get to have communion and to worship him through giving. And so if you're at home, hopefully you have a few things that you can have communion. Uh, but for the people that are here in this room, we have two stations in the back, uh, a little piece of cracker that reminds us of Jesus' body that was broken for you. We talked a little bit about that. And his blood that would be shed for you have that time and focus just that memorial time where you remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for you on the cross. If you want to give, there's some boxes where you can give financially. And um, if there's a prayer request or a concern that you have, we have some connection cards where you can write those down. We'll be praying for you during the week. But have this time with God. Respond how you need. And if you need prayer, if you have a decision that you would like to make, uh, please come and see me. I'll be in the front of the room. If you're online, uh, you can email me or text uh, any decisions or prayers that you might have as well. You guys can move about the room as you need to respond. Mm -hmm.